people think that there is like a magic formula that I will say to Google, okay, Google, here's a thousand pounds, give me 10 customers. Things don't work like that. We need to be innovative or in a different way that we do not imitate other people who we believe are successful. My name's Darren Smith and you're listening to Digital Surfing. This week we have another guest from Hubble on the show. His name is Costas Unicaris and he is the Vice President of Search Consultancy. Costas was born and raised in Athens and studied economic science. After graduating, he worked at his father's business for a couple of years before making the decision to move abroad. After graduating with a master's degree in marketing analytics from the University of Southampton, he started working at the B2B Marketing Lab as a digital marketing intern back in 2014. Working in that company and climbing up the ladder led him to his current role in the same organization, which is now Hubble. In today's show, one of the favorite things that we talk about is Costas' opinion on why you should not be cutting marketing spend when you need customers the most, like in an economic downturn. So let's welcome Costas to the show. Costas, it's great to have you. You're known at Hubble for being a great manager. Now, what is your approach to management? What, how did you develop that reputation? Do you do something in particular? I, to be honest, I don't know how the, the reputation was developed. I, I think it might have been from some internal rating sort of thing that we did at some point. Now, the, the way that I approach management, actually, I'm sort of winging it, to be honest. I, As I've said in the past, I, I, I didn't really have a manager to, for most of my career here um, where... You know, it would be somebody that I, I would be talking to on a daily basis. They would be checking my work, giving me feedback, uh, etc. Um, I did have a manager. I always did have a manager. But in most cases, my manager was Bob. Um, and as the CEO, he was um, obviously quite difficult to keep him right next to me all the time. So basically, I'm always trying to think about how I would like my manager to behave to me. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to put myself in, in my colleague's shoes. And when somebody comes to me with a question of, you know, you know, so, so something that is not like ordinary uh, in terms of, you know, I want to take leave. I know that, you know, it's it's been too, too so it's a short notice for this long time of leave that I want to take, but I have this issue and this and that and the other. And, you know, I, I'm trying to think like, okay, it is very possible that I would be in that person's situation at some point, And how would I want my manager to, to behave to me at that point? So I'm trying to keep it professional uh, to the extent that I, I, I will take into consideration both my colleague's situation, but also uh, what does the business expect from them? and try to make the best out of this in, in every situation. So generally, I, I try to help my, my team grow professionally in general so that they are more helpful for the business and the team. And because also this is what I believe they are looking for. So yeah, <clears throat> I'm trying yeah. to identify you know, their weak spots help them with those. I try to be as direct as possible. Don't want to hide, you know. Yeah. And I think I try to be their boss as well as their friend. And I believe I have managed that and then the combination works for them as well. 
if we are in a general business management style podcast, I'm like, you've said so much there, we could unpack so much. (laughs) I just wanted to start today's podcast on that. And we'll get into the stuff around digital and uh, search engine marketing and so on in just a minute. But let's stay a little bit longer on this topic. There's the very overused phrase, people leave managers, not companies. What do you think about that? I think it's true in part because I have people that have left the business and nobody ever has told me that you were a terrible manager or that I think I could find a better manager than you or something like that. And every time people have left is because they have found an opportunity somewhere else that they think is better time for them. And a very recent example there was this senior um, SEM specialist that we had like about a year. Yeah, I think about a year ago where he left. And he was basically struggling so much to make a decision to leave the business because what he would be getting from the other company that he would go had more to do with financial incentives and the fact that he would be allowed to work from a different country than uh, than than uh, the one he resided, um, which and generally we could support him with here, but the entire package that he was being offered was something that um, we weren't able to offer him at that time. Um, and basically, he was struggling between you know this financial incentive and the well-being of his family, and the the great experience that he had here and the culture. You know, I I do think that people. Uh, organizations because of bad management, but I also believe that in several situations there are other incentives. And there's there's a culture that exists largely all over the world where people believe, you know, I need to move every two to three years. That way, like that, that talking about that financial incentive you're just talking about now, I can yeah. increase my salary, I can increase my seniority. Now my personal viewpoint, I disagree with that viewpoint. I think people don't stay around long enough to actually benefit from management actually spotting them and wanting to reward them. Now, uh, the reason I bring that up is you've been around for nine years. What's, uh, what's, what's your secret to that? I mean, like, I'm assuming you don't agree with the concept of job hopping every two to three years. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, so, Yeah, so when I joined the business and I was just an intern, I had been looking for a job for like five, six months. And I I really needed to find a job. Like, And what I got here at the B2B Marketing Lab back then was not really exactly what I was looking for. I started marketing analytics, so like data analysis for marketing. What I was supposed to be doing here was only a very, very small part of my master's degree. Um, so I said to myself, okay, you know what? Like people in London change change jobs like shirts. So I'm probably gonna be leaving in like a year, maybe two. So let's get on this job, get some experience, get in the market. Uh, and obviously I have to mention that this was my first job in, in the UK. And in about a year's time, I'll just find something that is more related to what I studied. But it was, the fact that from the very first month, even even in the position that I was as an intern, I felt so valued and I felt that I was given such a great opportunity for growth in this business. And I was actually being relatively paid relatively well for 
an intern. But yeah, I, I just saw such an opportunity for growth and uh, also the culture was so embracing. It quickly felt like this was my second family. And yeah, the one year became three and then five and then eight and now nine. And I have considered moving on. I uh, said, maybe it's it's been enough. Five years, maybe it's been enough. Ten years might be enough. You know? But yeah, it's always the culture that, that keeps me here. And I always think that, okay, what more can I ask? You know, maybe I will get a, a salary increase if I go to another company, but what will come with the salary increase? Will I get the same feeling for the people? Will I be valued the same? Then I start a business hopping journey, like moving from business to business. So many more people are doing in London. I love that question, like what more can you want? I think it's a good question for people to ask when they've got that in their head. Okay, so we've set some ground basis and some ground about yourself and your, and your management style. Let's actually move on to a bit of digital and uh, search engine marketing, right? So I want to focus for a while on expectations, expectations in digital, expectations in search engine marketing. I'm like, I'm going to make a bold statement and say all clients you've ever had have realistic expectations. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get you there. Why, why do you say that? <laughs> um, no, not all my clients have realistic expectations. Why? The truth is, I don't. I don't know why. Um, I suspect it is because there are a lot of agencies out there that are making unrealistic promises. Like, I'll just give an example. So we very recently had a prospect in Singapore where they had just launched an e-commerce website mm -hmm. and they figured out that they were not ranking for anything. And it's a global brand. Basically, they, they went out and they put an RFP for SEO support for a year or two years. And from what we learned later, we didn't win that uh, because of price. But from what I understood, nobody else suggested our solution because basically they wanted to make unrealistic promises just to win the business. And, and I say that because we suggested that they should create content. They didn't have enough content. Basically, to me, shows that everybody else promised them that, yes, you will get rankings with what you've got, which it's, it's unrealistic. If, if people keep making such unrealistic promises, it is worse next that clients will have unrealistic expectations especially when they don't know enough about SEM. And you think that clients believe there's some sort of like formula that can just be applied and then they just begin ranking or begin yes. people just begin clicking on their ads? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very common that people will come and tell me, okay, if I've got a thousand pounds in this campaign, how much, how many customers will I get out of this? So yeah, people think that there is like a magic formula that I will say to Google, okay, Google, here's a thousand pounds, give me 10 customers. And things don't work like that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if there was a magic formula like that, I would like to know it. I think it's just that like people take benchmarks at face value, people take promises at face value. And it is really important that we educate our clients and our prospects and that we manage their expectations. And you know what, like when, when we lose prospects because we don't match their expectations. I obviously feel sad because we don't get the revenue, but at the same time, I feel happy because I'm 100% certain that this would not be a good fit.
So those good fit customers, like, like how do you now, through all your years of experience, how do you manage their expectations to be more realistic? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, firstly, I would show them examples of work that we've done before. I would say, okay, look, with what you've got now, we can get started here, and but we can aim to get there, but this will require work from both of us. And, and the very first thing that we need to do is define what success looks like, looks like for you. And I will tell you, for this success that you need, this is the budget that, that you need to set. So I think that all these things generate some sort of trust, which basically makes the entire collaboration with a client much smoother and, and nice to be in, in general. You know, we've got legacy clients. Well, I say legacy. I mean, we've got ongoing clients right now that we didn't start by setting goals from the very beginning because they came and they were in need of leads and they said, okay, here's my money. Uh, run me some campaigns. I need some leads. And after we've been running campaigns with them for some time, we're now going back to these clients and say, okay, look, we've done well up to this point. We've, we're here, but we believe we can get there. Let's set some goals. Let's set some expectations, let's set a plan and uh, work this out. Okay, so Stan, one last question on expectations, uh, but more looking to the future now, and, and, and in particular in paid media. 2023, what is your expectation on media spend and activity in 2023? Is it going up? Is it going down? People worried about economic downturns and so on. I've heard some companies increase spend during economic downturns, because so many others have decreased spend. But what's the overall trend that uh, that you think you're going to see? I don't really see any trends that show an increase in cost or spend. From what I've seen up to this point, I've seen people withdrawing budgets because they feel uncertain, which from my perspective is, is the most stupid thing that you can do, like cut basically cut off your marketing spend the time where you need leads the most and you need a, a healthy pipeline. I expect that there will be some um, instability in, in, in the paid media environment. There is all these talk about Google's privacy sandbox and uh, the third-party cookie apocalypse. And um, yeah, so, you know, I, I do expect that people will start trying to find some new places to to get more out of this, uh, more, more out of paid media. We are uh, at the same time trying to expand our solutions. So up to this point, for example, we weren't using programmatic and now we do have programmatic in our arsenal, let's say. We weren't using a lot of other paid media platforms, which are not as popular as LinkedIn and, and Google and Facebook, but you know, different industries can find audiences in different platforms. So I think that people will start expanding their portfolio regards to where they advertise. Um, and I think that we're we're gearing towards that. You said the uh, Google Privacy Sandbox. What on earth is that? So advertising and the advertising industry has been using what we call third-party cookies for several years now in order to collect data and build target audiences and record the effectiveness of paid media campaigns. The entire 
programmatics sub-industry, if you want, has been based upon third-party cookies. And most of browsers right now, say Mozilla and Safari and, and others, they have already blocked the use of these third-party cookies. But Google Chrome, which has 80% of browser market share in the world, still allows for third-party cookies, which essentially keeps all that use uh, of these cookies for the, for the digital advertising industry alive up to this point. But Google has announced that they will be stopping the use of third-party cookies on their browsers. Well, it, it was supposed to have already happened. Now it's been pushed back to the end of 2024. And instead of using those third-party cookies, Google has announced the privacy sandbox, which essentially is going to be a collection of new technologies that will allow advertisers to build those audiences and to track their campaign performance without the use uh, of the third-party cookies. Okay, that's cool. Most of the listeners should understand the concept of cookies and tracking cookies and and, and ads and audiences and that type of thing. So uh, a bit of a left-field question then, like, like mm-hmm. do you have any, like, insights into the set of tools that's going to become available is it going to enable things like like this podcast if somebody's listening to this podcast you've never been able to track that through attribution models you could be listening to it on spotify you could be listening to it on on uh, apple music whatever like there's so many different places like are there going to be progressions in that or is is that not covered in any of these or don't you know at the moment uh, to be honest i'm not certain i think that basically what Google is doing there is that it will be collecting people's information in, a, in an anonymous way. And this is the, the biggest issue right now and why it has been pushed back so much. Because what, what they're trying to do is that they will be putting you and me in buckets, let's say, of people that have similar characteristics. But they want to make it so that nobody will be able to do what we call fingerprinting and being able to pinpoint specifically Darren Smith or Costas Yenukaris um, to uh, advertise only to us. So I expect that all the activity that somebody is doing on Google Chrome will drive the way that people will be put in these buckets. But at the same time, anything that you will be doing with your Google account active, so if you log into Spotify with your Google account or if you log into your Apple podcasts on, on uh, with your Google account. All these things will be given information to to Google's privacy sandbox or the tools basically that will comprise this and, and be able to put you in, in those buckets and track effectiveness of campaign activity, etc. I don't think that up to this point there isn't any technology that does that. I think that third party cookies are being used to do that up to this point, but they're they're doing it in a way that is not. Privacy friendly. Okay, staying on this on, on this topic. Last question on this topic. Mm-hmm. So everybody's talking about AI. And in all the noise about AI at the moment, I read or heard something the other day that said, well, you know what? We don't have to worry about the third-party cookies going away because the AI is so smart, it's going to be able to work it all out anyway, just from very few slight hints. Yes. Is there any truth in that? Uh, did I dream that I, I I heard that? Or is this being spoken about? Well, 
I've not really heard of any AI right now that is basically working towards uh, building remarketing audiences and, and, and that sort of thing. I, I think AI can do a lot of things right now. Actually, we're not at an infancy stage for AI. We're, we're past that. And, uh, you know, ChatGPT and all these other AI tools that can create images, etc., they can do a lot of things that basically can help us right now. A lot of people fear for their jobs, but right now AI is not really at a stage where it can be creative. I don't, I don't know about specifically building marketing audiences, targeting audiences for digital advertising or, or you know, tracking uh, campaign performance. There can potentially be AI for that. But I think at this stage, people in general are looking to build AI that does a lot simpler things than that. Okay, cool. All right. I'm going to leave you with one last question then. <laughs> Over your career, what is the one lesson that you've learned to date that you think everybody needs to learn at some point in their career? I think that what I've learned up to this point is that we need to be innovative or in a different way that we do not imitate other people who we believe are successful. Because if you think about it, everybody that has been successful has not imitated somebody else in the past. I really like that one of our company values is being innovative because that reflects this 100%. Yeah, that speaks straight to my heart as well. Like, you know, the people that just copy somebody else's, yeah, you're not, you're yeah, not I mean, anything new. You know, you, you can be great like, by, by copying somebody else. You can be probably not as great as them, but close to that, but you will never surpass them. Yeah, yeah, because they're already doing the next thing while you're yeah. just trying to catch up to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> awesome, Costas. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Digital Surfing today. It's been awesome having you on the show. Uh, really good to have some other Hubble employees on the show with me. It's uh, so great. Uh, for those of you listening, please do like the show, share the show, it can help us expand the followers. And until next time, thanks so much.